I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this great book, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to talk about the majestic glory of Christ and his powerful word. And just to kind of finish a thought that I didn't finish, Joe Gibbs will be at the uh, Quad City Waterfront Center on August 31st from 6.30 to 8. So I encourage you to do that and uh, be praying because a week from Wednesday, Awana for three-year-olds all the way up through sixth grade and Chaos Student Ministry, junior and senior high, that all starts up on August 31st. So we're summer's winding down and trying to get a few things in. But as we study God's Word and we're in this study, I want to talk about today the wonderful, majestic glory of God and His powerful Word. Jesus is the Word of God, and Romans says that the Scriptures are the Word of Christ in Romans 10, 17. Why is Jesus called the Word? God had John write that in the opening of his Gospel. And here's why. You see in John chapter 1 and verse 1, On the screen it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice the capitalization of the first letter, W, in Word. It's hard to explain, but this is in the Greek a word called logos. And the idea is back in the times of the New Testament, the Greek philosophers and theologians like to use this word to describe human reasoning and trying to understand the rational mind of whoever the God is and define reality. And also it pointed to the fact that there is somebody ultimately intelligent out there. But they were searching and looking. And what John is saying here is we have found him. We have found the ultimate logos, and that is Jesus Christ. So he took a very important but common word of the day, and he capitalized it by attributing it to Jesus. The search for the true God was over. In the New Testament, the phrase word of God found in John 1, 1 and elsewhere shows God's desire and ability to speak to the humans. The Christian expression of this communication is evidenced in the Christ who is the word become flesh. In those three biblical words, Christianity points to the necessity and the possibility of union between the human and the divine or the personal and the absolute God logos which Christ represents. So that word talks about a bridge between God and man, that that man could have a relationship with the God of the universe as proclaimed in the gospel. So into our world, Jesus came the first time to not only be the physical form of God, but to speak the very words of God in the language of the day for all of humanity to hear. John used the word of the day and redefined it to its ultimate meaning found in Christ. In John 1.14, John goes on in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This morning, Peter is going to show us how majestic Christ and God are, and the power of the word sent to us by the Holy Spirit, written down for us to read, to study, to obey, and then to apply to our lives. Take your Bible, if you would, and look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Peter says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we commit this time into your hands. We pray you'll illumine our minds, help us to understand your word. Help me, Lord, to communicate it. May they not be my words, but your words. And Lord, that the impact of what is shared today would affect the hearts and lives of people, whether that's to encourage us, to remind us, to convict us, to challenge us. May we be open and receptive to what you want to do through your word today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Peter starts us off today by giving us a summary of an eyewitness account of the glorified Christ in what is known in the Bible as the Mount of Transfiguration. So the first thing you see on your outline is the glory of Christ revealed. The glory of Christ revealed. Peter's talking about the coming revelation of Jesus' majesty. He and James and John got a small glimpse of it for a very brief amount of time of what this Jesus is going to be like when he comes back and sets up rule and reign in Jerusalem for his thousand-year reign after his second coming. It says in verse 16, once again, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. Now remember, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians who are scattered abroad. They're weary. They're barraged with critics attacking them, but they're also vulnerable to false teaching. And so Peter is trying to warn them and to give them some ammunition to refute the critics. We see in verse 16, 4, it's a linking word there, the thought that he's closing out the chapter, but he's also linking back to the previous thoughts found throughout chapter 1. He says there, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. These truths were to be preserved for all time because they were truth and they were backed up by eyewitness accounts and history. Most religions have myths or fables about how the world began. They have these myths and fables that they want you to believe, even though they will tell you they're not even based in history. For example, Shintoism is based on uh, a couple things, and you'll see a picture up there, I think, of a flag. There we go. The flag of Japan, and also the Japanese islands. And the story goes that there was all over the earth this murky mud, and the thicker mud sunk down and the lighter mud was on top. And a green shoot came out and it went up into heaven and it transformed into a god. And this god made many gods. 
And the last two gods he made were Izanji and Izanami. And what they were to do is to go and walk around the earth. And they took, uh, one of them took a, a sword and stuck it in the mud. And when they pulled it out, the clumps that fell off the sword became the islands that you see of Japan. That's their view of creation. And then eventually, Izamaji and Izamani went out and traveled all over and created other gods. But then they came back together and they had a child. And her name was Amaterusa, and they believed that the gods felt she was too beautiful to stay on the islands of Japan, so they put her up in heaven as the sun. And so the Japanese flag, the red sun, represents Amaterusa. And she gave birth to who would become the male emperors going forward, and that's why they believe that their emperors are divine, are from Amaterusa. There's an example of a myth or a fable that they claim they know is not factual in history, but ask you to base their whole religion of Shintoism on it. Peter, on the other hand, is absolutely convinced of what he's writing about here because he lived it, and he saw it with his own two eyes. He says we, which includes James and John, at the event we are going to talk about here in a moment, the Mount of Transfiguration. But he says there in verse 16, they created these cleverly devised. That means to make wise, a sophisticated disguise of lies, concocted ideas. He uses the word myths. These are legendary stories, heroic figures participating in miraculous events and extraordinary feats of amazement, manufactured story with no basis in fact. In contrast, Peter and the apostles are making known by imparting new revelation from God. The second half of verse 16 is referring to the event that you will see as a heading in your Bible, the transfiguration or the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So keep your finger there in 2 Peter 1 and flip over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. So we look at the Mount of Transfiguration and the story of that as the backdrop to these verses that Peter is referring back to in 2 Peter 1. Matthew 17, I encourage you to look at verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, notice what Jesus said to them. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And they kept their word. And now Peter is revealing after Jesus' resurrection and ascension what happened and what was catastrophic and amazing about that, that event. First of all, this is shortly before Jesus is crucified and rose again. They called it a holy mountain. This might be Mount Hermon. We're not sure. 
But the Father, God the Father, was reassuring Jesus of his love and his commitment to him and to encourage him because he was about to endure the betrayal, the torture, the beating, the crucifixion on the cross. The disciples got a glimpse of Jesus in his exalted and glorified state. And they were so afraid, it says, that they were face down on the ground. And this was a preview of Jesus returning to earth the second time with all of his power and in all of his glory. And when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to come, as it tells us in Matthew, out of the eastern sky. It tells us in Matthew 24, 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What an amazing day that will be. And I hope that you know Christ the Savior and you're prepared to be a part of that day. <clears throat> Elijah represented all the words and the teachings of the Old Testament prophets. Moses represented the law that was given to him by God. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of the law. And notice in verse 9 that Peter, James, and John were told by Jesus not to tell anyone this vision they experienced until after he had risen from the dead. Let's continue back on 2 Peter, flip back to 2 Peter 1 with this teaching in mind. We see the preview of Jesus' majesty at the Mount of Transfiguration. The preview of Jesus' majesty. Look at verse 17 of 2 Peter 1. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter said that Christ received honor, his exalted status with the Father. He was given the highest respect and recognition that could be given. And do you realize that one day, one day, what an amazing sight it's going to be that when Jesus comes back, it tells us in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus received glory. He's shown with radiant splendor, divine, unparalleled brightness. God spoke at Jesus' baptism and now at the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father's affirming his Son, saying that he is equal with me. He's of the same stuff, the same nature that I am. And he's part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was perfectly righteous. It's interesting here in verse 17, you won't see this anywhere else in the Bible. God is referred to as majestic glory. It tells us in Deuteronomy 33, 26, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. In the Hebrew, Jeshurun means the noblest and best among you. The noblest and best among you. Describing God and his majesty. Then we see the eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. The eyewitness. He wants to remind them that this was something that he experienced. That this isn't something that he made up. In verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. Eyewitnesses here mean spectators, general observers. Peter is emphasizing that this was experienced by more than himself and rooted in fact. Peter is answering the accusations by his critics, the false teachers, by proving this isn't a made-up story. These verses confirm Peter's testimony of Christ. They're proof that suffering leads to ultimate glory in God's will. And this is proof that Jesus will come back a second time to establish his kingdom. This had to be what the transfiguration was about. Jesus came for the first time in meekness and humility. But the next time, he's going to be coming back with a rod and a staff and to balance the books of justice for all time. And so what should be our attitude now as we wait for his sudden and unannounced return? Well, 1 John 1, 3 encourages us. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see Jesus as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're to pray. We're to to watch for his coming. By doing that, we're seeking holiness in our life. We're to serve. We're to occupy until he comes not knowing when he will return. Here's our application. We will witness the full glory of Christ when we see him just as he is. If you'd like a little more on that, look in Revelation, I believe the first chapter that describes the fullness of his glory. The transition, Jesus was the special revelation of God and now Peter turns to the written revelation of the word of God that would be given to man for all time going forward. He talks about how the Holy Spirit will illumine us. In verse 19, illumine means to like illuminate or help us to understand. We can't totally understand the scriptures if we don't have the Holy Spirit. He reveals the word in verse 20, and he shares how the word of God is inspired. God breathed in verse 21. We see then the word of God, word of Christ revealed, the word of Christ revealed. God did not just depend on oral teachings or eyewitness accounts of the apostles to pass on the word of God. He used the Holy Spirit to record the scriptures. I like this quote from a book called Baptist in the Bible. It says, the reformers believed scripture to be God's word written. It was trusted, not doubted. It was studied, not ignored. It was taken as the final authority with regard to those matters on which it spoke or made affirmations. God had not really revealed everything. The Bible did not expressly contain all the truth that could be known. But what the Bible did teach was believed to be completely trustworthy. Truth in any other area would not contradict biblical truth. Starting from scripture, one could find the true knowledge of reality. End of quote. So the first thing we see here is the word of God is authoritative. Authoritative. It has full authority. It is truth. It's the foundation for what we base everything on in our lives. Here at church, as we go out to our jobs, how we live our lives, the word of God is authoritative. Look at verse 19 of 2 Peter 1. 
and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God is our final authority. Nothing trumps the word of God for absolute truth. We live in a culture when you say word of truth or absolute truth, you're considered a heretic. We live in a culture where truth is relative. Truth is what any individual wants to make it to be. And they say, and then we have to accept it and be tolerant of that truth, even though it might go contrary to someone else's truth. Notice Peter says we again, but now he's talking about church age believers. He says, we possess the word which is even greater than the experiences of the apostles. We believe the prophetic statements, he's saying, all the Old Testament teachings, that Jesus would come and he's going to come back a second time. He says in that verse, he says, you will do well to pay attention. He says, be awake, be alert, be ready. Don't be drawn away by false teachers, by critics. He says there in verse uh, 19, talking about the lamp shining. Lamp shining, the idea here in the Greek is that of an oil burning lamp. This is a metaphor for the light that the word of God is in a dark place, shining forth. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Peter contrasts the light of the word with the description of darkness. And his description is that of a dark, murky, swamp-like place. This is the picture of the fallen world under Satan's power with people blinded to the truth. And scripture provides light in a darkened world. He says, until the day dawns, until the day dawns. The next event on God's prophetic and redemptive calendar is the rapture of the church. But this is probably pointing beyond that, beyond that to this, after the tribulation for seven years to the second coming of Christ when he comes and sin and darkness and evil come to an end. It's interesting, he uses this term morning star. Morning star, it means light bringer. What's significant about that? Well, Jesus is described in the Bible as the bright and morning star in Revelation 22. He's also referred to a star in several other places in the Bible, but the light bringer. And what's interesting about that is Venus is the second planet and it's tethered to the orbit of the sun. And what's really interesting is Venus rises just before dawn, before the sun does, leading the way. And it also sets with the sun at the end of the day. Venus is the brightest planet visible from Earth and shines brilliantly throughout every morning or evening aperture. So as the light is rising, Jesus is coming back. And what does it mean rises in our hearts? Christ will be physically visible, as we said earlier, and his appearing will affect everyone on planet Earth. The Bible says, I believe it's in Zechariah, that he's going to step foot back on the Mount of Olives, right where he left off in Acts chapter 1. The ground's going to split. Jesus is going to set up his rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand-year period. Then after that, there'll be the great white throne judgment that will separate the believers from the unbelievers for all time. And they will go on to their reward or their judgment. And then he will replace the temporary, limited, but perfect revelation of the scriptures. And he will be in person, the living word of God for all of us to see and all of us to hear. 
He will write his word on our hearts forever in our glorified, transformed state. That's what he means by rises in our hearts. We see the word of God is the revelation of God. The last point here, the revelation of God. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter moves from the end of scripture to where it originated. Unlike any other religious book, this book came to man in a unique way. False teachers speak of their own things and their own ideas, but the word of God is all about God's ideas. We interpret the scriptures, first of all, by being illumined, by the Holy Spirit lighting it up and bringing understanding to us. And the Holy Spirit, it says, becomes our teacher. And we interpret scripture with scripture. The greatest way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary of all time. We begin there to, to understand and figure out the context and the meaning and the interpretation of a verse. The origins of Scripture come directly from God and are not based on man's opinion. For most of Scripture, most of Scripture we can completely understand and interpret but there's only one interpretation with many applications. Remember that and strive to find the true interpretation. And then the word of God originated with God and was sent by God. The word of God originated with God and was sent by God. Look at verse 21, if you would. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as the authors wrote their prophecies, they were impelled or borne along by God's Spirit. What they wrote was thus inspired by God. A companion verse to verses 20 and 21 of 2 Peter 1 is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And what's the purpose of that? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why God gave us the inspired word of God. God breathed, taken from God. A word you don't often hear about, but it's plenary. It means that all of it, completely all of it, even down to the punctuation as we'll see Jesus say in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, <clears throat> not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Everything that the word of God says, it will happen in the end. It's also inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible. In Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And I'm excited to say that mankind and Satan cannot thwart or stop the word of God. In Isaiah 55, the writer says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God will fulfill what he says in his word. 
In verse 21, though, of 2 Peter 1, it says, born along or carried along. Luke used this word in Acts 27, talking about a sailing vessel that puts up its sails and catches the wind and is controlled by the wind. The scriptures, human authors, were controlled by the divine author, the Holy Spirit. They were consciously involved in the process. They weren't just taking dictation or writing out of uh, a vision or ecstasy. No, they were involved in that process. And God used the men who wrote the Bible to use their personality, their creativity, and their own writing style to write his word. For Peter, it's as if the writers of the Bible raised their sails on their writing ships and allowed the Holy Spirit to fill those pens with this powerful breath of revelation as they wrote the divine words of God. Back in the summer of 1978, I was uh, between my junior and senior year at, uh, at Liberty University, and I went with uh, four other guys. We went out to Anaheim, California, and our task challenged us by Gordon Loff, one of our teachers, was to help revitalize this church. It was declining. It had been a really uh, important church, influenced impact in the community there in Anaheim. And we went out and knocked on doors all week, and then we also worked with the youth group. But just a couple days before we got to go home for the rest of the summer, which was a couple weeks, and then back to school, they took us down to San Diego and to the, to the bay there. And they uh, put us on a catamaran that had sails on it. And that was a wonderful, wonderful day. Of course, San Diego is beautiful in and of itself. But here we were out on this catamaran, and I experienced for the first time what it was to be led by the wind, by the sails. And that's a picture of what is going on here in verse 21, that they let the Holy Spirit write and lead them in whatever words to put down as the word of God. No wonder believers have a word of prophecy, which is certain, and no wonder a Christian's growth must depend on the scriptures. They are the very words of God himself. So here's the application. The word of God for the Christ follower must be our ultimate source for faith and practice. And the two words of the day, there are orthodox and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, the foundation of our faith, what we believe the historical interpretation of scripture, orthopraxy is how we live out those things in our lives. We practice what we preach. We walk what we talk. And here's the key thought. Jesus is the Logos, the word who became flesh. Carl Henry wrote a book back in the 70s when I was in, in college. It was called The Battle for the Bible. And he was always on the forefront of the evangelical world defending the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture. And toward the end of his life, he wrote these words. I thought it was very interesting. He says, I remain unpersuaded that any theological movement can dramatically affect the course of the world while its own leaders undermine the integrity of its chartered documents, the word of God, or while its spokesmen domestically exhaust all their energies in the internal defense of these documents. The Bible stands impressively unshaken by the fury of destructive critics, while the non-believing world itself, marked for destruction, urgently needs to hear its singular message of salvation. He says, hey, don't spend all your time trying to defend the word of God. It will stand the test of time on its own. Yeah, sure, when people you know, talk about it, point them back to the gospel. 
And then when he realized that Jesus rose from the dead and he affirmed all the words of scripture, then they will get to that place. But we need to be about sharing this powerful word of God with those out there that still need to hear the truth. Here's some questions to ponder this week as we close. Are you living each day in light of Christ's majesty and imminent return? Think about these questions this week. Are you living each day in light of Christ's majesty and imminent return? We don't know what day or what hour he will return, but we need to be ready. Is the word of God your first go-to when you're making a decision? If you believe it's your absolute authority, if you believe it's the truth, yeah, it doesn't speak to everything in life directly, but the principles of the word of God do speak to everything in our lives. And that should be the first place we go. Do you base how you live your life daily on the word of God? Let's bow for prayer. And as we pray today, let us be encouraged and let us not take for granted the word of God that we have in our possession. I mean, we have it on our phones, our tablets. We have it in so many places. And there are people around the world in persecuted places that would do anything just to have a few pages of the word of God. So may we value it. May we be thankful for it. And most importantly, may we live it out and obey it and apply it to our lives. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you that as we proclaim these words, it's not a man who is proclaiming them, but is the Holy Spirit using the very words of God to send out this message. And I pray today that you help us to renew our respect and our honor for the word of God. Help us also to, in our prayer life, to see Jesus and God high and lifted up and rightfully to be adored, to see God and Jesus in their majesty, in their glory, and just to try to imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back for all to see, and that, God, you will be the light in the new heaven and the new earth. We won't need the sun, the stars, the moon. You will light all of eternity. Thank you, Lord, that we can know who you are, that we can have a relationship with you, the creator of this universe, and that you love us. We praise you and thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen.